Evening. Let's begin with our chants as usual. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. That all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path of omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Just like the six ornaments and two supreme ones who beautify our world, you were their equal in your mastery of compassion, learning, and realization, yet you practice hidden in the forest and sacred solitude. Long Chenpa, who perfected samsara and nirvana in the state of Dharmakaya, Trimeo, stainless light at your feet, I pray, grant your blessing so I may realize the natural state, the true nature of mind. So, tonight uh, we talk all about the mind, or a lot about the mind. This is your mind. What is the mind? We have uh, four little snippets. If we make it through those successfully, we can look at the little add-on that I gave just briefly. sort of, sort of uh, snuck up on you with that one right at the last minute. So anyway, we're starting on page 167, which is the beginning of the commentary in this book. But uh, I don't think it's the beginning of the commentary itself. Derek? Yes, ma'am. Um, quotes a lot of sutras and I was just wondering if these are well-known sutras or major minor or um there's some of both most of them are, are well known and you know well let's uh we can talk about them briefly as we go through them and as we saw in the introduction uh, he was uh, quite studious during his years studying at Songpu. Spent uh, all his all his time in the library. They couldn't get him out of the library. Couldn't get him to do anything else but stay in the library like a little bookworm. And uh, so he he's reciting these apparently from memory, which is a phenomenal feat in itself. Um, the authors don't say much about, the translators rather, about the accuracy of the quotes. Often Tibetan authors misquote their sources slightly, uh, somewhat frequently, because they are doing it from memory and they have the gist of it, but not the exact words. And, and these, these translators don't really mention that, nor do they footnote a lot of the quotes. They don't give the reference page numbers they didn't do that which is um, 
from what I hear from translators, is one of the most tedious and uh, really uh, thankless parts of a job of a Tibetan or Sanskrit to English translator is when uh, your publisher requires you to source all the quotes, particularly with a book like this that has a zillion quotes. Some, some uh, translators do this quite diligently. You'll see Elizabeth Callahan, Carl Brunholtzl, many of them source these quotes just like uh, amazingly. And they'll spend, often they'll spend like a year doing this uh, additional work on a text, the sourcing, the footnotes, the, the review of edits and so forth. But um, these translators did not. So we'll, we'll go through them as they arise. You can look at uh, on page 170, just to skip to the end of this little section, you see the translators have given the section location at the end. In brackets, this is taken from the auto commentary. Um, one, four, four, colon, three to 147, colon, one. A little cryptic system of numerology. It's actually not numerology nor astrology, but uh, it's supposed to refer to stanza 144, the third line is the starting point, and then it goes to stanza 147, the first line. Now, since this section was many lines long, and that only includes three stanzas. These are long stanzas. These are not your four first stanzas. So this is prose and uh, it, it may actually be pages. It's actually more likely page 144, line three to 147, line one. Um, and we don't know what page the commentary starts on, so we don't even know if this is the first section of the commentary. But be that as it may, we shall jump in. And uh, I've asked Mary Beth and anyone else who wants to uh, alert us to interesting footnotes as we trip across them or try to pretend they're not there. Help, uh, don't let us do that. And uh, this is uh, complicated stuff. So. So uh, let's take it slow and uh, think about it, talk about it. Uh, but um, let's let everyone have some input. So don't talk for too long. If you do interject comments or questions. So the mind is the root of all phenomena. All phenomena depend upon the mind, and the mind depends in turn upon the present body endowed with eight freedoms and ten advantages. In, in the Vajrayana uh, Nyingma tradition in particular, there's a huge emphasis on the mind as being the most important thing. A lot of Nyingma texts at the beginning, they'll go through a series of uh, 
statements and arguments saying that the mind is the source of everything and just focus on the mind. I, I think this should not be understood as meaning don't pay attention to your body, don't keep the body in shape, don't um, use the body as a vessel of our being uh, in the sense of embodiment and practices that cultivate embodiment, a sense of embodiment. So remember the mind here is considered to be in the center of the body, not in the head. And uh, so when they say everything is the mind, I think they're not saying, you know, ignore your body. But they're saying all of that occurs in the mind. In some way, the body occurs in the mind, which is uh, sort of the starting point to think about what is the mind, what is the body, and what are phenomena, internal and external, since that is the big quandary in these chapters. They all arise in dependence on each other. So they're all interdependent. Nothing, not, neither of those three phenomena, the mind and the body, are ind independent. Uh, but they're, uh, they condition each other. So the mind is impacted by the, the eight freedoms and the ten advantages which we, went, which we went through in the very beginning of the book in terms of precious human birth. They all arise in dependence on each other. The mind is the cause of the entire phenomenal sphere of virtue, and the freedoms and advantages are its ancillaries or conditions that that support the the, um, the causation of the entire phenomenal sphere of virtue that the mind is the cause of. It's an interesting statement. It makes it sound like everything is produced by the mind, right? So that's the the main. Uh, statement that we have to uh, unravel, I think. Therefore, now that we are in possession of them all, our sole concern should be to tame our minds. I think we can all agree on that. As is said in the Suhaleka, which is a text by Nagarjuna, that in uh, English is translated as a letter to a friend, letter to my buddy. I believe this buddy turns out to be a king as, as so it's a letter to a king which is common and he says the vital point is to tame your mind for mind is the root of dharma so the buddha said and let's see do they have a list of texts in the back did anyone look these up they do i just looked that up they do thank you eric so yeah on uh Page 303, Suhurleka, a little bit of a tongue twister, letter to a friend by Nagarjuna. Dear friend, this summer I realize that the vital point is to tame your mind. The mind is the root of all dharma, so the Buddha said. And Nagarjuna is referring to a famous uh, statement by the Buddha that appears in a text called the Dhammapada, which is from the earlier uh, teachings of the Buddha, which the Tibetans had uh, minimal access to those texts. There was only a few of them in the Tibetan canon of texts that reached Tibet from India for some odd reason. 
So I, I believe he was not familiar with the Dhammapada. Otherwise, I think he would have referred to it. But the Dhammapada opens by saying that all things depend upon the mind. If the mind is positive, you experience a positive world. And if its mind is negative, then you experience negative experiences. Question of Sagara Sutra. This is not uh, a particularly well-known sutra, just the Mahayana Sutra, uh, probably what's called the Ratnakuta class, which is an early grouping of sutras. Also says, uh, Lord of Nagas, the mind is the root of all phenomena. So Nagas are the serpents that live under the waters of uh, the mythical version of the cosmology of Buddhism. And uh, the Nagas had a Naga king, a serpent king, famous, made famous by Nagarjuna, who, uh, Arjuna, and uh, meaning the conqueror of the uh, Nagas. He uh, conquered them in the sense of uh, talking them into letting them take the Prajnaparamita texts back with him to the human dry realm after visiting them under the water. Uh, the mind is the root of all phenomena. They derive from the mind. They manifest from the mind. The mind is the root of all phenomena. They derive from the mind and they manifest from the mind. Therefore, you should perfectly understand the nature of your mind. Now, I, I urge you not to come to any conclusions about Longchenpa's view about the external world and its, its dependence upon or separation from the mind until we go through the entire thing. Um, he, he's, he, remember he lives in like 1300s and, uh, we don't yet have uh, a strong prasangika madhyamaka, such as in the Galupa tradition, which rejects the Chittamatra and Yogacara views vehemently and creates this really strong division between what they call pure madhyamaka and impure uh, other, any other type of middle way philosophy, such as Swatantraka Madhyamaka or um, middle way, I'm sorry, uh, mind only, Chittamatra. So I think it sounds like a lot of the time it's like Longchenpa is a Chittamatra or Yogachar, but I, I urge you not to conclude that yet and to suspend that belief. For a while, because uh, he follows in the footsteps of Shantarakshita and Rong Zom, an early Nyingma scholar who cleaves to Shantarakshita's view that brings together Madhyamaka and Yogacara or Chittamatra in a very unique way. And uh, let's see if we can ferret out what that way is, if I can stop talking so much. Therefore, you should perfectly understand the nature of your mind. And the Tantra called the All Creating King, which is a very famous Tantra of Enigma tradition, its name Tantra and the first Tantra and the, the uh, set of Tantras representing the mind class of the Atiyoga Yoga teachings of the Enigma of the three classes of mind, space, and instructions. And uh, king implies male, but it's really uh, gender neutral. It's monarch, the all-creating monarch, all phenomena that which thus appear are manifested by the mind, are made by the mind. And that Tantra in particular is famous for talking endlessly about 
mind being the creative force for the entire phenomenal display. And then in the Lanka Avatara Sutra, which is a very famous sutra um, about a mythical uh, vacation that the Buddha took uh, and visited the island of Sri Lanka, which he never did in historical fact, but in sutra land he did. And he taught this sutra while he was there. And it's it's one of the main sutras uh, that's affiliated with the Chittamatra or Yogacara's tradition. And in this sutra, it says, although within a looking glass, a form is seen. So it's talking about like the very primitive versions of uh, telescopes, I believe, looking glass or like a ocular, what do they call it? You have like a one-eyed uh, eyeglass flooring. I thought a looking glass was a mirror. Ah, I think you're right. Thank you. Everyone else agree with that? Ah, good. Consensus is helpful, huh? Yeah, because I, I, I just... I, you thought it was an oven? No, I thought it was <laughs> a looking glass, like a telescope. That's what I thought, but... Oh, well, I, yeah. I mean, mirror works really well. <laughs> if you think it's a mirror, it's really cool. Because you but look at a mirror and it looks like something's stuff. there, right? So. Let's go with a mirror. Uh, <laughs> a form is seen, it is not there, but merely seems to be there. Because the mirror is a famous example used elsewhere, such as in the famous story of Through the Looking Glass, where it goes through. Go the, Google does say, oh, sorry, Derek. Yeah. Google does say it's a mirror. Thank you. <laughs> Google knows all. Not knowing that phenomena are, but the mind's experience. This is the key part. Phenomena are, but the mind's experience. The two cognitions, apprehender, apprehended, both arise. So uh, we're going to tangle with these terms endlessly as we go through this. Apprehender and apprehended sounds like a murder mystery. Uh, because of these and through the links, meaning the uh, nidanas or the chains of interdependent origination, of ingrained habit, various things arisen from the mind appear to beings outwardly, and yet this world is just the mind. That's pretty clearly saying that the world is the mind, right? And there are no objects of the senses there but the mind itself. The mind, stirred by habitual tendencies, is what appears as outer things. And the Lankavatara is famous for introducing the Alaya Vijnana, the eighth consciousness, and describing the phenomenal world as being the manifestation of the Alaya Vijnana, the display. Moreover, Back to Longchenpa, outer and inner phenomena appear to the mind in the manner of dreams. This also is key. While having no existence, they appear in all their variety in the perception of the deluded mind. So that's what happens in dreams, I think we can agree. And uh, he's saying in waking life, this is the same thing that's going on, is that phenomena appear in all their variety to deluded minds, such as mine, and yet they have no existence. 
Their appearance is born from deluded habitual tendencies. They do not truly exist as things, but seem to be truly existent to the mind. Therefore, the mind is the root of all phenomena. Things like mountains and so on, which appear impurely to the deluded mind, are contrived by the mind. Bless you. Though they are not actually the mind itself, as will be explained presently, furthermore. Oh, so that was key, sorry. Um, are contrived by the mind, though they are not actually the mind itself, as will be explained presently. Furthermore, if the mind is not kept under control, it is impossible to keep the trainings. So it sounds pretty confusing so far. Uh, at least I am hoping you guys are, because I think it is. And so we'll have to see how he works his way out of this one, right? Because it's, it's a little bit like he's worked himself into a bind here, it seems to me. Uh, first, he's, you know, he quotes uh, Shanti Davis' uh, entry into the Bodhisattva's way, the Bodhisattva, and the uh, importance of training the mind. It gives a few quotes on that, which I'll skip. Except for on 169, this, the second, the first full little stanza is very important. Um, the hellish instruments to torture living beings. Who invented them for such intent? Who has forged the burning iron ground, which refers to one of the hell realms? Uh, whence have all these demon women sprung? Again, the sort of male-oriented view of hell is being populated by demon women, but uh, letting go of that uh, way of looking at things, the point is like, who's created the hell realms? Are they actually existent or are they created by the deluded mind? He says, all are but the offspring of a sinful mind. This the mighty sage has said, throughout the triple world, therefore there is no greater bane than mind itself. I'm sorry? Finally, by simple taming of this mind alone, all these things are likewise tamed thereby. So it is that all the happiness and suffering of samsara originate from the mind, and therefore the effort to bring the mind under control is the root of all dharma. It is also said in the Ratnamega, or uh, Cloud of Jewels Sutra, which is a very famous sutra, Mahayana Sutra, sorry, the world itself is governed by the mind, and yet by the mind, by mind, the mind cannot be seen. All virtuous deeds and all non-virtuous deeds are what the mind accumulates. In the Kashyapa chapter, which is a section of the Ratnakuta Sutra that has forty all these chapters, forty-nine, and so these are. Uh, the Ratna Mega Sutra is a sutra that's somewhat affiliated with Chittamatra, whereas the Kashyapa chapter is not. It is said, because the mind is the author of all these actions, it's like a painter. Since it is the source of all harm, it is like a hostile army. Since it is the creator of all suffering, it is like an enemy. And the classification of wandering beings sutra, 
<laughs> you've got a suit for, for everything. It said, uh, I don't know that suit, by the way. Upon the blazing iron ground, again a reference to one of the hot hells, surrounded all around with burning tongues of fire, cut by sharpened saws of iron in eight parts as a single body torn. Very uh, cruel way of visualizing what happens in that hell. All arises from the minds of those who sin in action, thought, and word. Therefore, since the mind is the root of all happiness and sorrow, the taming, taming of it should be our sole concern. That seems to be the main point, that we need to tame our mind. And the question still remains, is the world separate from the mind or not? Uh, anyone want to place any bets so far on that? Okay. Lori wants to bet on that. <laughs> okay, mind, mind, intellect, and consciousness, the body, being numbered among gross material things. He's like referring to the Abhidharma classification of phenomena, where you have gross material things and then you have non-material things. The non-material is the mind and the material includes the body among other things such as sounds and so forth is referred to in the root text as a manifest city. So this was early on in the root text that we read earlier. Speech like an echo is perceptible but not physically present and is therefore referred to as a half manifest city. Uh, finally, the mind in being devoid of the five sense doors is utterly insubstantial and is therefore described as an unmanifest city. These three sort of levels of um, experience or, or uh, being of a being. These three cities are respectively designated as desire, form, and formless. They're affiliated with the three realms of samsara. This is because in the scripture entitled Summarize Wisdom, no idea what that is. The coarse body is associated with the desire realm, the speech, which is more subtle with the form realm and the mind, most subtle with the formless realm. It, meaning summarized wisdom, also declares that the uh, Chintya Prabhasa, which turns out to be the first of 12 major teachers of the Dzogchen or Ati teachings, uh, which in English is the child of sublime light, dwells in these three cities and explains that this refers to self-revision, primordial wisdom. A little bit of a non-sequitur, <laughs> but just to give you like round out the picture of that, uh, while, while uh, we have this sort of clunky reality of gross material forms, we also are uh, really, our true nature is within the realm of self-arising primordial wisdom. Is he referring to Buddha nature there? Uh, pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Three kinds of suffering, uh, which would be the suffering of suffering or pain, the suffering of change, and the all-pervading suffering, whereby the body, speech, and mind are all tormented, arise through the circumstances of thought and are experienced one after another in a manner that is deluded or due to our delusion or because we're deluded, we experience them. 
How do they arise? The six consciousnesses issue forth through their corresponding sense doors toward the objects of the six gatherings. Uh, the six gatherings are the six sense objects. It's just a um, an odd way to refer to them. I think he's uh, referring to them as uh, ayatanas, translating ayatanas. The apprehension of these same objects, the six sense objects, results in the experiences of happiness, sorrow, or indifference which are understood to exist truly by the deluded mind. Uh, one must necessarily understand that to refer to the deluded mind. The mental state arising in the distinct aspects of form, sound, and so on is consciousness. Things get a little complicated here. So, um, mind appears in the aspect of form as consciousness. So, consciousness appears as form, consciousness appears as sound, and so on. The mental state of consciousness appears as form and so on. The first, so now we go through a little explanation of how cognition occurs. The first vivid cognition of the general aspect of the object is mind. We get into the different aspects of mind. So the first apprehension of an object where we just experience an entityness. Uh, an assumption of entityness on the side of the object is perceived by mind, sem. Finally, mental factors that discern the features of the object and, and then is continuously involved with craving aversion. And ignorance is, in this context, called intellect. So he's given, given, giving his explanation of <clears throat> how cognition occurs in the Abhidharma tradition or the tradition of valid cognition where we have mind as in primary mind, one of the consciousnesses, but then mental factors as in the 51 mental factors. And uh, the traditional definition of these is that mind is aware of the entity and the mental factors are aware of the details of the object, the different aspects or characteristics of the object, Jill. Could you just uh, elaborate a little bit on the difference between consciousness and mind in that paragraph? Yeah, so, so mind includes consciousness and mental factors, consciousnesses and mental factors. No. But I, I understand that. What I, I'll tell you my point of confusion is that it seems like he's defining consciousness. So consciousness in this case is just that moment of, in which the apprehended arises. Is that correct? And then, because I'm not quite sure how um, that is different than the vivid cognition. Is that when a concept arises? Um, 
He's, uh, I, I believe, uh, not not a concept. He, I believe he's describing the, the first moment would be in this chain of moments would be consciousness arising in the form of objects as form, sound, and so on by virtue of the, the meeting between the sense faculty and the sense object, which he described in the paragraph before the six consciousnesses issue forth through their corresponding doors off to the races toward the objects of the six senses, the six sense fields, and the apprehension of these same results in the experiences of blah, 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 which um, is understood as consciousness. That interaction is consciousness. And uh, the, the first cognition of the general aspect of the object, and the object in this case is the consciousness appearing in that in the uh, aspect of form and sound. And uh, then we have mental factors that determine the features of the objects. And so my, my understanding is that mind includes consciousness and uh, that vivid cognition and the mental factors. So mind is this general term that includes all all three of those. Really? Sims? And, well, Sim, he's given uh, as um, the mind of the vivid cognition. Sim as being the, yeah. one of the, the triad. I've sometimes, yeah, I'm sometimes struggled with when mind is being used in multiple cases. So... I, I do too, and uh, it, it's. I find it actually quite odd that he lets that happen, where because it seems really obvious that he's using mind in so many different ways, and he doesn't clarify that. It's a little. It's a bit of a question mark or a big question mark. It's why he's an, isn't he a little more clear about that term, mind? I think he's trying to be here, but you know because. Uh, the translators are using the word mind in the second sentence of this paragraph. The vivid cognition of the general aspect of the object is sem. So I'm saying that sem is one part of one of three things that are together make up mind. Okay. I but, have a question related to that as well. Um, so is this consciousness one of the six consciousnesses? Yes, any one of them. Any one of the six? But it's not the seventh or eighth consciousness. Those are different consciousnesses. Yeah, that's right. I get very confused by all the consciousness. <laughs> Confusing, right? So everybody, it's you know, just, yeah. First, you have to know your eight consciousnesses. Mm hmm. We we all know the sixth, and then the seventh is like the the uh, the consciousness that believes that it exists. We call it the ego consciousness. In Sanskrit, it's the klesha consciousness. So it's the the klesha consciousness, the source of klesha, starting with the belief in ego. It's sort of the ego consciousness, and then the eighth consciousness is the all 
consciousness, the ground consciousness, the storehouse consciousness, the okay. and creator of all conscious experience. And these are used differently in different traditions. And um, it's, it seems to me Longchenpa is very unique in the way he's using these terms and in his understanding of this whole uh, area of cognition and mind and mind only. And uh, then we'll see in the, that uh, little chapter I suggested you read part of which we won't get to tonight, but when we do get to it, you'll see his presentation of the three natures of the Chittamantra tradition is unique. So let's see if we can continue on. So the mental factor, I'm sorry? Can I ask a question? You uh, mentioned primary mind. Does that include the, the 51 mental factors or is that different? Yeah, thanks for asking. So uh, I'm referring to the terminology that's used in the, the valid cognition tradition, where they call uh, the mind that is the cognizer, the primary mind. And uh, so in this case, it would be Sen. Oh. And then the mental factors are referred to as secondary mind. Oh, thank you. Thank you for asking that. Finally, the mental factor um, that and the Tibetan is Sem Jung. Jung is uh, um, is hard to translate particularly for somebody like me. <laughs> so it's, it's the, those things that support the mind, that go along with mind, are what discerns the features of the objects and is continuously involved with craving, aversion, and ignorance, is in this context called intellect. So the translators are calling the mental factors intellect. And... Uh, Anyone here ever read the book by Chogyam Chungpa Rinpoche called Glimpses of Abhidharma? That's what he calls the fourth skanda. And the mental factors are the fourth skanda. So these translators have used that same translation as of intellect, which is not a, not a common translation, but interesting that it's similar. And uh, in many ways, Chungpa Rinpoche's presentation of Abhidharma in that book is very similar to Longchenpa's presentation. And uh, what those 51 mental factors are is, uh, would take a, a lot of time to go into, but it includes two types of things briefly. It includes uh, sort of functional aspects of the mind, such as the ability to uh, determine characteristics, um, the, the ability to pay attention, the, the ability to focus on an object, the ability to retain that object, things like that. And then it includes all the, uh, what, we, what we would call emotions, the virtuous and the non-virtuous states of mind, the five, uh, six big clashes and so forth. So it's calling that intellect and you see the Tibetan is Yi, it's not yid, yi, 
as it is said, it is said it's in the Bodhisattva Bhumi Shastra, which is a famous text by a Sangha, map, maps out uh, the Bodhisattva path. The perceived appearance of an object is consciousness. The first detecting cognition of it is mind. So again, they're translating sem. And uh, the term for consciousness would be a different term. Did it give that in Tibetan? They did not. And uh, so the, the perceived appearance of an object is consciousness. And the first detecting cognition of it is mind. And I thought I should should say a little bit about this whole presentation of the way cognition occurs. And that um, uh, I've studied these things for a very long time and I found it very confusing and hard to piece together. And at the same time, very helpful to see how he presents these things. But um, I would uh, beg you to be patient and uh, uh, not ask you to uh, repress questions uh, or conclusions, but uh, just be patient in in uh, dealing with the difficulty in understanding this section. But definitely try to. Eric. Yes, ma'am. Just um, I'm a little confused about where our labeling uh, comes in here, our naming the object. Does that Aiming traditionally comes in in what he's calling intellect. Intellect, okay. Mental factors. Okay. Thank you. The first detecting cognition of it is mind, sem. The mental factor, sem jung, of the subsequent discernment of the particular features of the object is intellect. So this is pretty much repeating what Longchenpa presented. So he's, he's uh, in alignment with the Sangha. These three states interpenetrate and are concomitant with each other. So the three states are consciousness, mind, uh, in the sense of primary mind, and mental factors. Um, so he's making a separation between consciousness and mind. And he's not saying it, but my way of interpreting this is that when he's saying mind, He's talking about the sixth consciousness. And when he's talking about consciousness, he's talking about the other five. That's my hypothesis. Let's see if that holds water as we go through this. Uh, whenever, wherever, rather, there is mind, there is also the mental factor that is concomitant with it. This is one of the main principles of the way mind is understood in the Buddhist Abhidharma tradition is that uh, this primary mind and the secondary minds of the mental factors are always simultaneously present. You, you never have one without the other. Um, so question, does, in terms of those three, this is not like the framework that you often use that talks about the moments in kind of a consecutive order of the sensory experience and then the, like we often talk about those three or four steps process of cognition. I think it is where the first one is the, the sense consciousness. 
is this is moment one. The second moment is uh, the primary mind is aware of the sense consciousness, in this case, appearing as forms and sound and so forth. And then the third moment is the intellect, the, the mental factors. Being six, well, but so then you were, uh, okay, so basically the second one is mind, sixth, primary mind, but that's sixth consciousness, but in its first step before it gets discursive and more detailed in its associations and things. That's the third one. Right, right. Okay. All right, I was thinking it might be that, but I, the, the way that he called the first detecting cognition made it sound like that's, but that's not really the first, right? I, th I think he's going to add a little twist soon. So okay. Let, let's Move on. Buckle my seatbelt and see what happens here. Uh, let's see. Conversely, the mental factor is itself pervaded by the mind with which it is related. So these are sort of intermingling. Um, the mind is thus concomitant with the mental factor and it's ever present in the mental factor in the manner of an ancillary. So these are interdependent, mind and mental factors, um, or, or interpenetrating rather. When an object is encountered in an act of knowing, the first moment of cognition which focuses on the general aspect or identity of the object is called mind. Then when the individual features of the object are assessed, one speaks in terms of mental factor, which I believe is what uh, Cynthia just pointed us to. Although these two are labeled differently, they are in fact none other, none other than the very perception and discernment, intellection of that object. I think he's uh, somewhat referring to the skandhas of per uh, perception, the, the uh, third skanda, or maybe the second and third together, feeling and perception, and then the fourth skanda, intellect, mental factors, discernment. And then he quotes the Ratnavali, famous text by, uh, by Nagarjuna, Garland of Jewels. Uh, one says the mind is seen, one does so only on the level of convention. For without mental factors, there's no mind. There's no object. They're not said to be concomitant. I found that to be a rather confusing quote. <laughs> Since he just went through saying how they're concomitant. They are. Yeah, that's so, so that's what I was just going to say. So this is, even though we're separating them, we're saying intellect and mind are happening at the same time. But then he just says, no. <laughs> the, I think the only way to understand it is that the second line says, this is this is does so only on the level of convention. That's as far as I can figure, the last uh, part of the last line is sort of like referring to the ultimate emblem. It also seems to me like what this quote is saying is that if you didn't have mental factors, then there would be no mind, so therefore they wouldn't be concomitant. But there are mental factors, therefore they are concomitant. Is that what it's saying? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that was so 
Hey there. <laughs> well, I, that, that's the way I understood it. Yeah. Are we sure it's not a typo, right? <laughs> Take out the knot and. <laughs> I'll, I'll ask. I'll ask Woolstone. I'll ask the translator. <laughs> I contacted him when this comes out, and he was like, "Did we get it right? I don't know." Well, we. <laughs> He was like, "Let me know what you think." <laughs> is he is he referring to the uh, not to the way we see things, but to the way enlightened beings see things? No. Well, he says that's the second line, right? The bringing up yeah, attention. yeah, and then he goes on in the next paragraph to talk about the Tathagatas. So. My thought was, this is the lead-in to that. That is the only way to understand that. First, he's saying, saying when one sees the mind in the way that Longchenpa has been describing the mind with a primary mind and mental factors and consciousness, is only in conventional world, conventional realm. But really, there are no mental factors. There's no mind. There's no object. And there's, there's no concomitance. That seems to be the only way to understand it. But let's see. Uh, Derek, can I just go back to the paragraph before um, that first moment of cognition, which focuses on the general aspect and then on the individual features? Does that relate to specifically characterized phenomena and generally characterized phenomena? Or is that totally a different thing? Um, I believe it refers to both, the cognition of both types of phenomena. Phenomena, okay. But I'll, I'll think about that. On the level of the Tathagatas, or when, free of conceptions, one rests in the fundamental nature even though appearing sense objects are perceived distinctly, one does not speak of mind, intellect, and consciousness, for there is no apprehension of dual appearance. There is no apprehended object and no apprehending mind. I guess thus the explanation of there is uh, not said to be concomitant. As is said in praises of the Vajra mind, sounds like a tantra, beings growing used to dualistic clinging imagine that mind, intellect, and consciousness exist. They do not have that primal wisdom free from thought. The mind that sees the truth is supreme primal wisdom. So again, this word mind is used in all these different ways, right? And so now we have the ultimate view of the situation earlier. He's giving us like the conventional view. Now he's giving us a little bit of a glimpse of the ultimate view. But, but then the question would be, do we know which version of mind, which Tibetan word is being translated here for mind? Like, I guess Wolfstan would know that, but we don't. Yeah. Uh, we don't know. We're not talking, whether it's Sem or whether it's Rigpa or whether it's who knows what. Yeah, I can, I can ask them again. I mean, they, they gave us the Tibetan a page ago. It would be odd to use the same term for a different Tibetan one, but. Oh, hold on one second. Getting 
warmed up here, all this mind stuff. As it is said in the Ratnakuta, a Mahayana Sutra, although they are free of mind, intellect, and consciousness, the Tathagatas do not discard the state of concentration. This is the inconceivable secret of their mind. You know, why he throws, what's the relevance of this? Especially when he said they are free of mind, but that's the secret of their mind. <laughs> now, concentration is one of the mental factors. So, he, you know, he, maybe he's saying they're free of all these things, and at the same time, they dwell constantly in this mental factor that's no longer a mental factor because they no longer have mind. You know, so one of the other things going on is that anytime you read a presentation about mind and reality by a a teacher of the Mahayana tradition. You can never be sure uh, whether they're, they're giving you literal, whether be, they're being literal in what they're presenting or whether they're being uh, leading, whether they're trying to lead you to understand something by the way they're presenting it. And uh, so the, the uh, emphasis always is on being uh, of a critical mind when reading these things and really taking it slow and trying to understand. Furthermore, when the mind perceives forms, sounds, and so on that are appearing outwardly, as if outwardly, in those very aspects, uh, so when the mind perceives forms, sounds, and so on, appearing outwardly in those very aspects, this is referred to as consciousness literally cognition of aspects. So consciousness is the perception of forms appearing outwardly. Cognition of aspects. So we'll come to this term aspects further. Again, one speaks of cognition of aspects because the mind in, is generated in exactly the same aspect as its object. So the consciousness of the mind, the consciousness aspect of the mind is generated in the uh, in exactly the same aspect as the object, it takes on the aspect of the object. So the mind is like this magical morphing substance that reflects the, uh, the, the appearance of, of whatever comes in front of it, like a mirror the looking glass, and uh, takes on that aspect as appearing as the outer object, so-called. But, but even more magical than mirrors in that it has the six different ways, you know, a mirror is just the dimension of visual, right? But right. then it's even more crazy because it's got three-dimensional and sound and all those other things, right? Thank you, yeah. Yeah, it's a six- miracle. Surely is a magical mystery tour. <laughs> uh, let's see. The knower of the object in the first moment of cognizing it as this or that is called mind. They don't give the Tibetan, presumably Sem again. When the particularities of that object are discerned as they occur in a, in a continuity of dependently arisen inst, arising instance of consciousness, one speaks of intellect. So there's this funny play of 
mind and intellect being simultaneous and sequential, where um, when uh, consciousness arises in the aspect of the outer objects to the mind, then the, that's the first moment or the uh, second moment, first is consciousness, then it's experienced by the mind as the second moment, and then there's the mental factors that arise, that are uh, dependently arising instance of consciousness as one continues to uh, cognize the consciousness, as the mind continues to cognize consciousness. And Derek, he says continuity, so that's where we begin to see uh, we we think there's a continuum going on instead of discrete moments. Diluted definitely does, yes. Yeah. Um, does that have to do with that thing where there's like multiple like sequential moments that we've talked about? I can't remember exactly what it was that you've... It implies that that there are a number of sequential moments of the of the mental factors thinking about the object, associative thought. Where we where there's first there's uh, a flash of experience or cognition of an object by the mind, and then there's the mental factors think about the object for quite some time. Moreover, when they're perceiving cognitions that vividly and in an instant issue from the different sense stores, examine the appearing object and take it to be something pleasant. Attachment occurs. So this process gives rise to uh, the three roots and the other, all the other uh, clashes and positive uh, mental factors. When they take it to be something unpleasant, aversion occurs. And when they take the thing just in itself as neither pleasant or unpleasant, ignorance occurs. It is like seeing a beautiful woman with whom one is familiar, an enemy by, one, by whom one has been defeated, or seeing things for which one feels neither attraction nor repulsion. Walls, rivers, roads, <laughs> trees. <laughs> He's not much into these things. <laughs> and people for whom one has no particular sentiments. As it is said in the Vinaya teachings, the rules of discipline of the monastics, since attachment increases when you see people you like, since aversion increases when you see people who harmed you, and since ignorance increases with respect to all that falls between these extremes, take control of the doors of your senses. And this is why the monastics are... Uh, uh, it's suggested that they have their eyes downcast as they walk around instead of looking around and appreciating the world, that they just keep their eyes down and not really engage with the objects of the, of the senses. The eight consciousnesses as the basis of delusion. The plot thickens. I can feel the anticipation out there. Jeez. Palpable. Okay. At the very moment when cognitive experience another great elusive mind term. At least he gives the Tibetan here, Shepa. So She is knowing. Nam She is consciousness, divided knowing. Um, she is the, the root that appears in the Tibetan version of Prajna. Prajna in Tibetan is She Rab. Rab is very knowing, very. So uh, she means knowing, 
cognitive experience, shepa, knowing. At the very moment when knowing or cognitive experience occurs in relation to an individual object, and individual objects, by the way, are sort of uh, sketchy to begin with, but that's not his main point. The mind, the sem, which is the, the uh, agent that knows shepa, that perceives it without making any clear distinctions initially, is called the consciousness of the universal ground. So this very first moment of clear, um, without making any clear distinctions, that first cognitive experience is called the eighth consciousness, Aliyah Vishnana, and his scheme. I said it was the sixth consciousness, but I said, well, let's see what, he, what happens. And I remembered he was going to change it to the eighth consciousness, <laughs> which is very odd. I, I see Lori's like, what? <laughs> so let's go on. The oh, no, 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 you can't just, <laughs> because you said the eighth consciousness was the storehouse. So how could the storehouse be the universal ground? Is that, what, is that right? That's how these guys translate it. Yes, universal ground. Wow, that's not how I would think of the words universal ground. It would seem to be more basic than a storehouse. Well, uh, sorry. Consciousness of the universal ground is the storehouse consciousness, is the Aliyah Vishnana, is the eighth consciousness. It is. When I said uh, storehouse, it's one of many ways that translators have used to translate the term. If you want the really basic ground, then you have to go to the Aliyah non-Vijnana, that's not the Vijnana, right? Right, just Alia. Just plain Alia. That's where you'll get your more basic ground. You see in the Tibetan there, Kun, K-U-N, and then G-Z-H-I-I, which is pronounced G. And then uh, the word R-N-A-M, and don't pronounce the R, you say Nam, She, so you have the She again from Shepa. So Nam, She, uh, as I said earlier, is Vishnana, and mm -hmm. Kunji is Alia. So this is. Oh, so it is that one. Yeah. Subsequently. Wow. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> subsequently, the cognitive event that apprehends the thing, which is the, the so-called in, in, uh, individual object, as this or that, dis discerning its features, whether in a rough or detailed way, is the intellect. Yi. Let's see. So at least he's consistent there. As it is said in the ornament for the wisdom of Majushri Sutra, Mahayana Sutra, the mind is the consciousness of the universal ground. So we see a difference between the mind, the term, the way he's using the term mind, and the Alia Vijnana. That which clings to self is the intellect, the seventh consciousness. Forms are seen in dependence on the eye. And that which perceives is the visual consciousness. Now, when he says eye, either the translators didn't translate it or Longchenpa was using shorthand, but usually uh, they, you would say forms are seen in dependence upon 
the eye sense faculty, which is different than the eyeball. It resides somewhere within the eyeball. That which perceives is the visual consciousness. Likewise, sounds are heard in dependence on the ear, odors in dependence on the nose, tastes on the tongue, in contact on the body. The perceivers are the five sense consciousnesses. At least it seems when he's saying, talking about consciousness, he's talking about the five. Consciousnesses are called sources, ayatana, because foregoing instance of consciousness give rise to subsequent ones. Since circumstances, namely objects and their cognitions are endless and since the consciousnesses never separate from all these different aspects, extensive and manifold as they are, they are referred to as the elements. So he's trying to flesh out the picture of the Buddhist Abhidharma and uh, valid cognition way of understanding mind and mental factors and all these things and and explaining uh, he's sort of been going around explaining the skandhas and now he's explaining the ayatanas and the datus and he's explaining why they have such funny uh, literal meanings which are not necessarily that helpful in my humble opinion since the subject mind arises from the object as though supported by it. Did you catch that? Since the subject mind arises from the object as though supported by it. So isn't that saying that it's sort of like that the consciousness doesn't exist separately from the object but arises from it? It arises out of the contact between the two? If you had inserted the word mind there, I would be with you. Be the mirror. <laughs> we need a, we need two mirrors. Since the subject mind arises from the object as though supported by it, since the latter, meaning the object, arises in dependence on the former, so the object arises in dependence on the mind, and since the mind and its object are related in the manner of a phenomena and its characteristic property. <laughs> Consciousnesses are said to be dependent arisings. So it feels like he's just playing with this a little bit, but uh, I think he's continuing his sort of definitional progression through different aspects of the, the elements of experience. And he's describing the, the sense of uh, interdependent origination or the nadanas, the 12 nadanas, and the interdependent nature of mind and objects, sort of laying the basis. And then he's gonna, gonna uh, shed some light on things, I hope. When the object and subject come together, subject I, I imagine is the mind, subject mind, happiness and so forth may be felt and known. Therefore, owing to their contact and the act of perception in which the subject and object coincide, the consciousnesses are referred to as feelings. So he's continuing through the progression of the Nadanas. If you know your Nadanas, there's uh, the six senses and then the contact and then feeling and so forth. In brief, all actions resulting from the gathering of an object, sense organ, 
and cognition are either non-virtues when they are motivated by the three poisons or great virtues when, as in the case of patients, they are free of these three poisons. When the ten positive actions are not associated with the path of wisdom and compassion, they constitute an inferior kind of virtue. Since they fall within the ambit of ignorance, they produce only a single happy result in samsara and then are exhausted, so they're limited in nature. They're consequently referred to as virtues leading to happiness. If, on the other hand, they're associated with the path of wisdom and compassion, they're the cause of enlightenment and for this reason are referred to as virtues leading to liberation. Negative actions motivated by the three poisons are the causes of evil destinies and all the sufferings that exist. Virtues leading to the happiness of the basis of the abundant happiness of the divine and human conditions of the upper realms, whereas virtue leading to liberation is the cause of the higher realms in the, in the immediate term and finally of the definitive excellence of enlightenment. So he's just sort of like uh, laying out a bunch of different terms. He explained how he felt cognition occurs. Now he's sort of laying out all these different aspects of our world. And uh, I think he's going to go further with it. He quotes the Ratnavali that basically just repeats what he just went through. So I'll skip that when all the dreamlike things that appear as if they were extramental are apprehended as being other. They turn through habit into sense objects and appear variously as pure and impure. So the dreamlike things that appear as if they're outside of our mind are apprehended by the mind as being other. They turn through habit into sense objects and appear variously as such, either pure or impure. They're the locus of delusion, the place where delusion arises because the inner nature of the body engendered from the elements is not recognized its true nature. It turns through habit and into an objective entity and sits and contains the aggregates, the skandhas, elements, ayatanas, consciousnesses, defilements, and sufferings, which are the result of the defilements. The body is the basis or foundation of delusion. The self-arisen primordial wisdom of luminosity is empty by its nature, luminous by its character, and unceasing in its variously rising radiance. It's almost as if he's just listing a bunch of definition of the different aspects of the of the uh, of our existence as human beings. Upon which, from here, he's going to launch into explanations of uh, the way things are. It's sort of laying the ground, so to speak. Uh, so this very traditional way of presenting the ultimate nature of our mind or our being, the self-arisen primordial wisdom of luminosity, which is our true nature. Its nature is empty. Its characteristic is luminous. And it's, uh, it manifests as unceasing variety uh, an unceasing variety is its radiance or its manifestation is an unceasing variety. Yet through its being fixated upon in terms of a real apprehending subject and apprehending, apprehended rather object, awareness, rikpa, which is, which is not uh, the rikpa that's famous in Dzogchen. This is just 
just is just the, uh, the uh, intelligence of mind turns through habit into the ordinary mind. Sen. Now, this is not the ordinary mind of the Mahamudra, mind you. This is ordinary, ordinary mind. <laughs> um, it arises in the form of the five or three poisons. Through its clinging thus to eye and mind, which is the root of delusion, the hallucinatory appearances of samsara appear, though non-existent in the manner of reflections or dreams, or as falling threads or hairs seen by people with impaired vision, they definitely seem to be real. The apprehended, apprehending subject is I, and the apprehending object is taken to be mine. It is just like considering a house as one's own. So this is like the construction of samsara, how samsara comes about. He's just explaining all the different worlds and realms and aspects of, of our existence. Um, okay, so a few pages beyond into the next reading, if that's okay, since we have, oh, uh, wait, the mind and the objects that appear to it, 261, right? Okay, yeah, it's good to complete this picture before we go into the three natures, and we'll hold the, the sort of the... Uh, um, the explanation point, exclamation point, or the resolution till next week. We'll keep you in suspense. So, page two sixty one, uh, the mind and the objects that appear to it. For Cynthia, that comes after the chapter called the practice of generation. And I actually uh, found it, believe it or not, shockingly. Thank you. A person's face is reflected in a mirror, the clear surface of the glass. Now, well, here's the looking glass. Provides the support for the appearance of the reflection in the face, for its part, has the power of casting its aspect upon the mirror, giving rise to its reflected form. Thanks to these conditions, a face appears, but in the very moment of its appearing, the reflection is neither the face itself nor a face different from the face that cast its aspect. So what is the reflection? The reflection is this odd creature in terms of existential terms, in terms of this analogy. What is the face? What is that reflection? What is the aspect that appears in the mind? He's really talking of using the analogy of a mirror and the, uh, an object reflected in a mirror as an analogy for the way that objects reflect are reflected in the, in the mind through the the uh, process of consciousness, which is called the aspect. And uh, they're, they're neither, uh, they are not the outer object that was reflected in the mind or in the mirror in this case, nor are they something separate from it. So they're not the same and they're not different. In just the same way, all the multifarious appearances perceived by the deluded mind appear through the interdependence of the causes and conditions of delusion, which he just went through in that last chapter we read. And when they appear in the way that they do, the appearing objects in all their variety are not the mind itself, but neither are they truly existent, extramental things. So here, actually, what is the external world? What are those 
appearing objects. Lori is going to answer that for us. <laughs> no, what were, were well, we... they're not the mind, but they aren't. They aren't what they appear to be. That's what they are, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> um, is, isn't that getting at the middle way? The way he explained the middle way in earlier chapters, in the earlier chapter where it's. It's not what it looks like, but it, but there's something there. So it's not like there's nothing there. It's not. Right? There's not nothing there, and right. there's something there. There's something there, but it's not what it looks like. Well, not what you think it is, right? That's right. There's not nothing there, but there's not something there. Uh, let's see. And when they appear in the way that they do, the, those appearing objects in all their variety are not the mind itself, but neither are they truly existent extra mental things. For their appearance is due solely to the deluded habitual tendencies of the mind. It is thus that they are, hallucin are hallucinatory appearances and perceptions. He started with the reflection and the mirror of an object. And we thought that, and he focused on the reflection as being this sort of slippery entity of not being one thing or the other. And now he's pointing out that the the object that casts the the reflection is is of the same nature of not being one thing or another. Those so-called external objects are not the mind, but they're not truly existent. They're not really real things out there. So he's not letting you conclude one way or the other. He's not letting us conclude that, oh, everything is the mind, nor is he letting us conclude that there are things that are separate from the mind. Very uncomfortable. Not to be able to conclude one thing, one way or another. Uh, let's see, it is thus that they are hallucinatory appearances and perceptions in just the same way that black lines are seen by, seen by people suffering from an ocular disorder. They appear and yet are not really there. So uh, he's talking about float, what are called now floaters, where you see lines in your eyes that look like they're lines in space. And... Uh, uh, now we know that uh, floaters are actually little ripples in the fluid in the uh, ocular world, in the uh, eyeball. So they actually have a sort of level of conventional existence. But back then, uh, floaters were just sort of this mysterious uh, appearance in the visual field. Somebody asked, some of you, maybe half of you may ask if all appearances such as earth and so forth are neither inside nor outside the mind, what the fuck are they? To this, I say that those of you that ask this are like pigs. <laughs> it's not very polite or kind, is he? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I was asking that same question. So I found this part rather insulting. Uh, taking for real what is merely the product of dualistic clinging. 
thanks a lot. It's that slap in the face. In the very moment that the entire range of phenomenal existence, the phenomena of both samsara and nirvana, appear, they cannot be found either inside or outside the mind. So he keeps thinking, like, or I keep thinking, well, okay, if they're not in the mind, they're not. if they're not in my mind, then they have to be out there. And he's saying, hey, don't be so stupid. Uh, Eric, the pig stands for ignorance, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Nor are they somewhere in between. It is said that they're similar to the eight examples of illusion, which is uh, like a bamboo or a plantain or a dewdrop or a bubble or a rainbow or a mirage or uh, the standard list of uh, eight types of illusion, including uh, TV pictures. And Gandharvas, right? <laughs> and the world of Gandharvas. Okay. The Samadhi Raja, the, the king of meditation sutra or, or concentration sutra, asks, says, when a woman with her face adorned looks on a mirror or an oiled plate, the circle of her face is what she sees, and yet it is not there, nor is it somewhere else. Know that all phenomena are thus. More explicitly, it's from these non-existent appearances, so-called extramental phenomena, that the illusions of apprehended and apprehender, whereby the appearances are identified as this or that, originates. So the illusion of apprehended and apprehender originates from these non-existent appearances. How can something originate from something that's non-existent? This is a slippery slope. I, I sense a trick. This is something something tricky going on here. Uh, in this context, the apprehended, what is grasped by the, uh, the cognitive mind, the word in Tibetan means that which is grasped, is the cognition that arises in the first moment in which the object of engagement which is the so-called outer object, is detected. So what he's saying is that there's a so-called outer object that's detected in the first moment of cognition, and it's seized upon, and thereby it becomes what is apprehended by our cognition. He doesn't so, actually use the term outer here, does he? Uh, no, he says the object of engagement is detected. The object of engagement is a technical term from the valid cognition tradition. That means uh, the object that we're trying to get at, that we think exists. It is the mind that arises in the guise of the thing apprehended. So the mind is arising in the guise of the object of that engagement. And then we apprehend the mind. Whereas that which apprehends is the subsequently arising mental factor of discernment. So mind perceives mind and then it thinks that it saw something extra mental, separate from mind. And off we go to the entire samsaric world. Whereas that which, uh, let's see, as it is said by Avalokitavrata, the apprehended is the mind itself. 
apprehended as an object. The apprehender is the mental factor that discerns it. The mental factors look at the mind, thinking that they're seeing some external object. At the same time, he's not saying that those external objects are the mind. Your ordinary people like me being unlearned are as pretentious as they are mistaken, say, the apprehended are the things that appear, mountains and so forth. The apprehender is one's own mind. It's very simple, right? Our mind, apprehender, apprehends external objects. The way Derek? with Yes, ma'am. Wasn't he presenting this in the last chapter? He was presenting this. The apprehender and the apprehended were this last time, and now he's getting a little more involved. Am I understanding that correctly? He's breaking it down a little further? He's definitely breaking it down further. He's advancing his argument further. But Okay. Uh, I, yeah, I think yes. I would agree with you. Okay. That he did introduce this scheme last time. I'm last. just wondering why this chapter wasn't like right, right next door to the others. Yeah, <laughs> I know that the placement of them is a little odd. Yeah. Uh, let's see. The apprehender is one's own mind. The apprehended are the things that appear. That's what us or foolish people like me say. Away with the ideas of such foolish cowherds. Cowherds are like, uh, it was like the common occupation back then. Yeah, herders. So that's like saying uh, foolish, just dullards or whatever, I guess. In the experience of noble beings who have eliminated the duality of apprehended and apprehender, do such sense objects appear or do they not appear? Really good question, right? What do the enlightened people experience? If these people claim that they appear for enlightened people, it follows that noble beings perceive the duality of apprehender and apprehended. For they have said that the object is the apprehended while the cognizing mind is the apprehender. If on the other hand, they say that sense objects do not appear to them, and this flies in the face of countless scriptural passages that say, on the contrary, that the appearances seen by the noble ones are like illusions. That the Shravaka Arhats see mountains and temples, and that the enlightened wisdom that knows phenomena and all their multiplicity perceives all objects of knowledge. So the scriptures themselves say that enlightened people see objects. Although many such demonstrations and arguments can be found, there's nevertheless no end to the wrong ideas that people have about this point. What is one to do? It says this, as Dharmakirti, who's the famous logician, Buddhist logician says, because there's no end to false mistaken paths, here there's no explaining them. <laughs> there's so many possible mistakes to make, there's no way we can ever go about explaining them. The assertion that outer objects, outer appearances in the mind has been refuted. Where did he refute that? He refuted that, I believe, when he said that uh, the, on the page before, 
in that first full uh, paragraph where he says, second, uh, first sentence, from non-existent appearances that the illusion of apprehender and apprehender originate. The apprehending is the cognition that arises in the first moment in which the object of engagement is detected and so forth. He's calling that his proof, by the way, has been refuted. Nevertheless, these people persist in taking mountains and other things as objects and the first moment of consciousness that apprehends them as perception. In truth, they fail to distinguish the perceived appearance from the object that appears. They fail to distinguish the perceived appearance from the object that appears. So there's a sense that there's uh, an object that's separate from our perception of that object. And our perception of that object is um, the perceived appearance. Such as the great intelligence of cowherds reifying deceptive things and assuming them to be true. Assuming that there's an outer object that is separate from our appearance, our perception of it. The object that appears is not the mind. It, it seems like this whole class tonight is like an, an exercise in frustration. Has it felt like that to you? Is it just me? Uh, let's see. For it remains where it is when one is not in its presence and does not change its position when it goes elsewhere. He's talking about like mountains and things like that. We don't carry them around in our mind, so they're not in our mind. He's being very simplistic. <laughs> Likewise, the object appears endowed with color and so on. Now, if the appearing object were really the mind, it would necessarily follow one around. It would be necessarily present wherever one might be and would disappear whenever one was absent. Just as the mind is neither colored nor shaped, the object would be without them too, as was previously explained. Since the determination of something as either appearing or not appearing as a matter for the mind, it is certainly appropriate to state that the mere perceived appearance of something as a mental state. However, it is extremely ignorant and unacceptable to say that the appearing object is the mind. So he's separating the appearing object from um, the uh, perceived appearance of that appearing object. And the appearing object is not the mind. The perceived appearance is the mind. Very confusing. Why do we read books that are so confusing? Kevin. Did you say the Chittamirans came after him? It's pitchforks and uh, ropes and <laughs> all sorts of things. Uh, no, they, they were, uh, the, the Chittamirans were a thousand years before him. I said the the really uh, uh, conservative Prasangika Madhyamaka school came after Longchal, okay. which made like this big separation between Madhyamaka and Chittamacha. So he's in this interesting period before that separation occurs. But he seems to be going there. 
it's definitely playing with it. But uh, he's riding a fine line, which, uh, as Laurie said earlier, is this sort of middle way between between asserting things and not asserting things. Yeah. You know, refuting that that objects are mind, and not asserting that they have some some external existence at the same time, and leaving us in this suspended position. Emily. I just was um, looking back at the first few pages of what we're looking at tonight, and it does seem like whenever Longchamp is speaking in his own language, he says things like phenomena depend upon the mind, or the mind is, um, are manifested by the mind, but he himself doesn't actually say they are the mind exactly. Um, so it feels to me like when he's using his own words anyway, rather than quoting other uh, people's words, he doesn't quite put a tack in the wall, you know, pin something in the wall that says it's just your mind in the same way that he doesn't also say, but it's also totally an object. So I feel like he's not quite going against himself the way it felt at first to me. Yeah, that's really important. Thank you. So on a sort of first read, sort of uh, uh, surface level read, maybe it feels like he's like contradicting himself all over the place. But I think if you go through it carefully, as Emily is saying, he, he's fairly consistent in saying basically that they're interdependent mind and phenomena. And uh, I think uh, next week, uh, I, I read ahead a little bit, hoping that that might have some help. And I found that the next section was very helpful. So I think you will also. Um, but, uh, you know, so was was tonight sort of futile. I think I think the exercise is uh, to uh, think about the way perception, cognition occurs, to think about the, the process of experiencing objects occurs. How does that occur in the, in the Buddhist traditional way as uh, explained by Longchenpa? You can also study how uh, it's explained in uh, neuroscience and they're not that different where objects are replicated in the nervous system and uh, that replication is then transferred to different parts of the brain and th this is similar to the aspect where the where consciousness takes on the aspect of the outer objects I think he uh, sort of exhausts, intentionally exhausts his reader by giving this sort of roundabout presentation of uh, um, not concluding clearly one thing or another. That last part felt a little bit like a Zen koan. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and at the same time, laying out all these different aspects, all these different terms. Yeah. Well, it was interesting, too, because he went right there, as you said, laying out all the Abhidharma terminology, and then he sucked in that little Dzogchen view right in the middle of that, yeah. one-liner right in the middle of that, and then he went back 
you know, and further spun the mind around. Clearly needs to be read about 10 times. As if that, as if that aspect or that Dharma was purely like, you know, just standard. Now he's just like checking off the, the skandhas, the ayatanas, the dhatis, the nadanas, and the primal wisdom. Sure, you know, it's part of the mix. It's on yeah. the <laughs> you got to describe it. I, I think that, but I think he put that thing in there about primal wisdom as a reminder that we're breaking all this down and because we're, we're still samsaric beings. So here's how to understand your experience. But remember, primordial wisdom is this, this, and that, you know? So, and it's like, just remember that, like, that's the goal. <laughs> Don't yeah. forget the goal. We're here, but He's giving yeah. reminders throughout. And that was a very yeah. clear one. Yeah. yeah. Really yeah. very clear one. I forgot who's his audience here. I mean, good question. Uh, who is his audience? It's uh, it's hard to say. Um, it feels like he's writing for like the future, for uh, some large audience of uh, practitioners and teachers or scholars of all different traditions, and he's like trying to in in uh, encapsulate all these different traditions that go before him and present some sort of unified it's like he's trying to present this like unified field theory of the mind and, and the reality but um you know he's stuck away in some little hermitage off in the mountains so who is he writing did he does he see that his writings are going to you know be incredibly uh important for the Nyingma lineage for the Nyingma tradition um, you know, and, and then in retrospect, his writings remain revered, but very complicated and difficult to understand. And uh, what happens ultimately is that in the 19th century, Mipam Rinpoche, uh, one of the the most amazing scholars of the Nyingma tradition, writes a slew of different texts to try to clarify the Nyingma position. And, he, and the unspoken reason for that, I think, is because the writings of Longchenpa are so difficult and so hard to understand. And because they happen before a huge amount of uh, uh, development of thought in Tibet, and it's unclear how his presentation related to those. So Mipam draws this line back to uh, Longchenpa and then this gentleman, uh, Rongzong, who's this very unknown in the West, but famous in the Nyingma tradition as being the first main scholar of their world in Tibet. And uh, then Shantarakshita, who the hell is being this... Uh, scholar that brings together the Madhyamaka and the Chittamantra or Yogacara traditions in, a, in the perfect way. And they, they see that there's this continuity in thought that, that Mipam traces and, and traces back to Longchenpa and uh, Rongzong and uh, Shantarakshita. So... I was just noticing the very last line here, which I guess I kind of 
didn't see as clearly before, but where the one where it's saying it's extremely ignorant and unacceptable to say that the appearing object is the mind. Um, so technically appearing object that does that have a specific technical meaning in terms of like the apprehended object, the appearing object and all of that. It's the, the, uh, hoped for, um, uh, say again the term that he uses. So he says, says the appearing object, the context was saying it's extremely ignorant and unacceptable to say that the appearing object is the mind. So in a sense, after all this time earlier where it seemed like he was saying everything is mind and was very mind only, I was just was trying to figure out whether this is actually totally the opposite and very clearly saying we're not talking about mind only. So that's why I wanted to clarify what the appearing object because he's saying that it's... The appearing object, he, he talks about in other places as extramental. Right. So this, is, so this is, at the very end, making a very clear statement of, no, we're not saying that the whole extramental world is mind either. That's right. So, it's, yeah, it's just like, right. <laughs> he's, he's not a mind only in, in its traditional sense. He's not a mind only philosopher in its traditional sense. But he's... he's uh, He's saying that uh, those extramental appearing objects are not truly existent. They're not truly existent. Are they? Ex does he s clarify whether he thinks they are or are not extramental? Really? It, it's like uh, talking about uh, uh, flowers in the sky. Do those exist in your mind or outside of your mind? sky flowers or the children of barren women mm -hmm. or the horns of a hare. Yeah, all of that. Yeah. That's, that's what he concludes, I think, in the next section that we'll read for next week, which I found very helpful. Is, is basically says, this is these are, uh, uh, the appearing objects are not truly existent. So they're not in your mind, but they're not anywhere. So in a way, it's a similar exercise as trying to figure out where the mind is. There's no in and out on that either, inner and outer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that helps. That's, that's good. I feel like Longchenpa likes to end his chapters by made our minds today find rest or by leaving us in confusion. <laughs> I know. I was thinking the same thing. The root text was so nice, but after all this complicated stuff, it would it would like say, "Okay, let's let's rest now." Here, you don't get the rest, right? There's no rest line. Yeah, the commentary doesn't have any resting in it. <laughs> I think we should rest. We should be in the habit of resting, and maybe we can just end in that way by just resting for a minute. to let all that complexity dissolve. <laughs> it did make me really interested, though, in reading. Uh, he has uh, one of his 
precious treasures is on the different views of the different schools where he goes through all the different views of the Shravaka school and the Chittamacha school and the Madhyamaka. And he presents his version of Madhyamaka, which, as I said, is before the Galupa, like really strict conservative Prasangika Galupa presentation. So it would be really interesting to see. Another course here? Is that another book? Another, another course. Another life. How many courses would that be? <laughs> oh, of course. Let's uh, dedicate the the uh, transcendent virtue, hopefully. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. Ocean of samsara, may I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Hope you all remain well. Look forward to seeing you next week. Hopefully much more satisfying. <laughs> Thank you. This was very good. It was It was satisfying actually. Totally. Yeah. I enjoyed <laughs> this. <laughs> intellectual. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Derek. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Jerry. Everybody. Take care. Thank you, Emily. Oh, yes, of course. Thanks, Emily. Oh, my pleasure.